This episode of 11 Point Collar is brought to you by America's Hat and Weirdos Like You. You're listening to 11 Point Collar, hosted by J.D. Hansel of MuppetHub.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm J.D. Hansel of MuppetHub.com, and you are listening to episode 81 of 11 Point Collar. It's great to be recording the show again, especially since it's been quite a while since I last released an episode of anything. But hey, if John Oliver gets to leave me hanging without a show for several weeks this past summer, then I get to give my listeners a taste of that agony, too. I think that's how it works, right? I don't have to... I don't have to take any of the blame as long as I'm copying someone else, right? I think so. Anyway, uh, so even though I just got used to it being summer, here we are going into fall, and believe it or not, I've already seen Christmas decorations being put out in stores. I mean, come on! Who's crazy enough to be excited to see Santa Claus's face again in September? I mean, I guess it's... What? Okay, Andy, Randy, think about this. It's the beginning of autumn. Christmas is several months away. Why should there be Santa stuff in stores right now? He's early! He's early! Oh my gosh, you guys are such annoying imbeciles, especially you, Andy. Andy, you are the most detestable. Please stand by as JD throws another one of his petty hissy fits. Anyway, this podcast... Hey... This podcast is a production of MuppetHub.com. That's right, MuppetHub.com, where the Muppetational comes together. Check us out for the latest news, articles, videos, and more from all around the Muppet web. Subscribe to the show in iTunes at MuppetHub.com slash iTunes. Like us on Facebook at MuppetHub.com slash Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at JD11PC. Don't forget that I love to hear feedback from you guys, so please shoot me an email with your thoughts on the show at me, M-E, at MuppetHub.com. This concludes the obligatory housekeeping paragraph. Moving on, today's show features my special interview with Nicholas Lemon of Nicholas Lemon Productions, a name that's surely familiar to listeners of the Muppet cast and puppetry fans in general. He's got a really cool project to talk about called Some TV, as in, hey, let's watch some TV. It's a great way to cause confusion with your family when you put on his TV special every single time they say they want to watch some TV. It's a lovely prank if you're as misanthropic and evil, really, as I am. Anyway, we talk about a whole variety of things that are way more interesting than what you'll hear in Steve Swanson's new interview with Nicholas Lemon, so you don't even need to bother listening to that show after you've heard this, you know? You know? In all seriousness, for the sake of brevity, uh, yes, I know, me being brief, haha, but still, I'm going to play a fun Muppet song, then we'll jump right into the interview, which will be most of the show, and then I'm gonna wrap things up. That's it. Simple show. Sound good? Well, even if it doesn't sound good to you, that's what I'm doing anyway, because I have the power here and you have none. Mwahaha! Hey, what you wanna be? Do what you wanna do. Be what you wanna be. It's up to you. Wow, 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 wow. Be a pilot and go for a flight. Take a salty dinner in your jet Singer at the top of the charts. Of course, she hires the 
And here we are with the head of Nicholas Lemon Productions. He's one of the coolest entrepreneurs in the puppetry field, in my opinion. He's taught puppetry, improv, and more. Uh, he's produced the unique puppet comedy special, Some TV. Mr. Lemon, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here, J.D. And I, I'm very happy that you're happy to be here, J.D. <laughs> and I'm happy that you're happy that I'm happy that you're happy to be here. I have to ask a question now or we're just going to be stuck. So uh, I'll start with a pretty general, broad question, as I normally like to do, to give the listeners a general idea of what it is we're talking about. And then as we go further, we can get more detailed and more interesting from there. Now, how would you describe your recent project, Some TV, to someone who's not familiar with Lemon Productions at all? All right. Well, what I'll do is I will give you the pitch and spiel that I give everybody. So Some TV is a one-hour, adult-oriented special. Um, it's not crass and crude when I say adult. It's just geared for adults. So there may be a little, you know, cheekiness or naughtiness in the special. Um, and are you familiar with Monty Python's Flying Circus? I am familiar with it, yes. Imagine if that was created by Jim Henson's Muppets. Oh, boy. And that's the special. And uh, it's for, for audiences between 18 and, and 35. Um, and it's just kind of taken off more than, than what I had expected. I know it was originally designed just for one TV network, but then it has spread to other networks in that family and is starting to spread from Canada, where you're based, even into the U.S. Is that right? Yeah, it kind of you're making it sound like a disease. Um, it's spread in a positive way. No, I know. It's I know. the good kind of disease. It's, it's like it's like it's a good kind of gonorrhea. Um, so what happened was it was supposed to air on Rogers TV in Toronto, which um, it's public access, kind of think of it that way. And um, how it came about was in 2012, I approached the network and said, you know, I have something I'd like to pitch to you to see if you guys would be interested. And uh, they said, come on in. And it, it was a very quick meeting. And they said, okay, so tell us what you're, what you're looking to do. And I said, okay. And I told them exactly what I told you. And I said, you know Monty Python's Flying Circus? Yes. Well, imagine if that was created by Jim Henson's Muppets. Great, go do it. And that was the meeting. And so it was a four-year process. And it started, again, was only supposed to be here in Toronto. And then it spread to the outskirts of Toronto to the point where it's now airing across Ontario and airing into the U.S. multiple times and uh, possibly across Canada as well. And it was just sort of this little project of passion that could. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, everybody donated their time um, because how Rogers works is they work on sponsorship. So, and this is for all their projects that they do. Um, they say, okay, you need to get sponsorship. And you go to different companies and get sponsorship. Only the problem is, when I tried pitching the show to companies, they were like, yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, we, we just don't think we could fund that kind of show. And I, and I was like, it's not crass and crude. No, no, it's not really our alley. And so after about a year of trying, it was sort of like I went to everyone in the company and I said, you know what? 
we're not getting any, getting any legs for funding. Are you guys okay with moving forward with this? You know, my company would fund it. And they were like, yes, they, everyone believed in the project. And that's kind of how it happened. That's something really kind of amazing and special. I, I, I was kind of reminded of Mystery Science Theater 3000, if you're familiar with that, with the way it started as something very much so. supposed to be very small, very local, and then grew and grew. So it's very interesting to me to hear about how something that you've worked on that started fairly small grew. Though I am curious about how you've aimed it towards adults, going for a somewhat mature production in a way, but not trying to be crass or crude. Has it been difficult to find a balance between not, these two? Not really. I mean, the big the big thing is the. I've always been the the standpoint of you can get people's attention by giving them a little bit of honey, as opposed to trying to bash it over people's heads, and that's kind of the mandate that we not officially a mandate, but the unofficial mandate was you know, what would we want to see? And the things that, you know, myself and the writers and a lot of the crew grew up on were obviously the Muppets, you know, Python and Sid Caesar and all that. And a lot of that had the mentality of you can push the boundaries, but you don't need to be crude about it. John Cleese um, had a very great quote, and he said during, um, with comedy, that he found that it is much easier for people to use the F word multiple times because it's an easy laugh. It's an easy get for comedy because it you're at least people are going to laugh out of uncomfortable uncomfortableness out of at the very least. But he said comedy is much more effective if you use swear words selectively. And that was kind of the mandate of what what we what some TV is. It's not so much about being crude, it's about and not talking down to the audience, it's about playing to the highest level of intelligence. And that was kind of the mandate that everyone in the show liked. It was always about, you know, how can we show society in a positive way without wimping out? Like there's one, um, there's one scene called the golden years of porn. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, in it, you know the, the puppet is watching pornography, but the dialogue and the characters are, you know by what they're doing that he's watching pornography, as opposed to making really graphic sounds. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's a very clever way of doing that. I, I'm kind of reminded of a quote from Groucho Marx when he talked about I don't think I can remember the exact quote right now, unfortunately, but he talked about how anyone can say something dirty and get a laugh, but if you're going to try to say something that's clean and get a laugh, then that's going to require real comedy. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff I like. You know, I, I'm much more of a fan of, you know, not playing to the lowest common denominator. And I'm sure you and, and your audience can have seen a ton of puppets where they, you know, try and be crude. And it's just, it, it gets boring after a period of time. You know, the stuff that lasts, like the Mark, Marx Brothers and all that, they play to the highest level of intelligence. Yeah. Now, I, I gotta say, I'm really amazed by the fact that you started Lemon Productions at the age of 14. 
and right off the bat, you're doing puppetry at the most professional level you can. And what was it like touring with these live stage shows at such a young age? Well, first of all, thank you for asking that. Not too many people ask about the touring years. We call it the I call it the touring years only because it was like a ten year period. And I would say that that is the most formative time for me as a performer and creator because I was fourteen, stopped touring live at 25 I believe and we were doing 250 shows a year within a year of, of the first performance um, it was very much a lot of fun uh, but it was also very much a lot of hard work because we would basically we would go to bed get about three or four hours sleep have to pack up and be ready out the door by about four drive about an hour, hour and a half to the, the venue, and then have a four-hour setup time, do an hour show, um, and then sometimes we would do workshops after with, with people to show how things are done and, and you know performed and, and things like that, and then it would take two hours to tear down, and then we'd have to, you know, drive back home, drop the, the equipment off, and then by the time we got, you know, my head hit the pillow, it was probably like 11 or 12 o'clock. And then you'd repeat it all over again at three, get up at three in the morning, be out the door by four, you know, that whole thing. And so it very much developed the stamina that I have and the performing that I have, because I don't think we would have been as successful if the show wasn't good quality. And from, from a psychological standpoint, without getting too Freudian. <clears throat> on my shows, you are always allowed to get as Freudian as you want. Okay. Um, it did cut me off from people my own age to a certain point because most 14-year-olds are looking at, you know, going to prom or something like that. And my worry was about, you know, are the, the company's books balanced or, you know, are we getting contracts signed, things like that. So it did certainly change me, mature me very quickly, but not in a bad way, I don't think. You know, again, most kids can't really relate to that, so it did create a bit of distance there. But I enjoyed doing what I was doing. So, um, although I, m I must tell you that at a certain point, once once my friends who kind of distanced themselves from me um, from not understanding what I was doing, once they saw what I was doing, they very quickly wanted to be my best friend again. So it allowed me to see, oh, okay, this is what fame on this level can do. I mean, it's not, I don't mean fame from a, a grandiose standpoint, but, right. you know, getting some attention, it does change people. You know, some people have, I think it was Ringo Starr. Someone had said that fame and popularity doesn't necessarily change you. It changes people around you. Hmm. Um, which I would agree with. It does, it can change people around you. I mean, it can change people. Um, but I, I think it, it sh you know, it allowed me to see people in a much more realistic light. You know, it, it made me go, okay, I can very quickly tell if someone is liking me for who I am or liking the project that I'm doing because it's good or are, is someone liking me because of what I do and don't really have my best interests at heart. Yeah. So for that, I'm grateful for it, you know. Yeah, I think that when you're trying to do professional work as a teenager, which to, to some extent I can speak from experience on that, 
with sure. the podcasting, which isn't mm-hmm. quite as impressive, I don't think, as doing the puppetry stage shows. Um, well, I, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I mean, the, the, it's you know anyone can do a podcast, but it's it's not a lot of people can do great quality. Um, I certainly get the feeling you're not saying you know exactly what it was like for me, but you know you you do understand, I believe. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know if you've heard my earliest shows, but I started doing <laughs> podcasting with no clue what I was doing, in the slightest. I mean, I asked Steve for some help, some pointers. Um, and he gave those to me, and I googled some things, but I basically started by making whatever show I could, no matter how imperfect or, frankly, awful it was, and then just keep going at it and going at it and going at it, drawing from any influences I could to make the show a bit better, getting a better microphone to make the show a bit better, using better settings, better editing, training my voice, etc., just trying to get it to the point that it was a professional show. So by the end of my teenage years, I think I was doing... (laughs) fairly professional work but well and, the, and the, that's if i can just interject for a quick second professional doesn't necessarily mean a certain level it's to me professional is how do you view what you're doing you know and it sounds like for you from a very young age while you may look back and cringe for what you've done that's really irrelevant it's really what the public sees you know and if they like it and you're doing it professionally you're a professional podcaster hmm well, well, thank you. Now, it's funny that you mentioned cringing, because that was actually what the next question on my paper's about. I was wondering if you've <laughs> ever looked back on some of the early work from your, teenager, from your teenage years and gone, ooh, if I had known then what I know now, gosh, I wish I could do that differently. Uh, for some reason, when you said that, something popped into my mind. Some of the costumes we had very early on were, I'm like, oh, that doesn't quite fit. Um, we had sponsorship from a clothing company and it was a tuxedo company and that doesn't, a tuxedo doesn't quite fit with sort of a vaudeville rock and roll type of show. So I sort of look back at at that and go, oh, that was not a great, that was not a great idea. Um, and some of the stuff I look back on and just go, you know, while it may be a little cringing if I distance myself, I go, okay, it was the process of growing and developing, you know? Um, and that's kind of the view I have, you know, what I, what I'm doing now, probably next year, I'm going to look back and go, Oh, I shouldn't have said that or done that. But I sort of go, you know what? I'm not breaking any laws. So it's just part of the development of, of, of who I am as a performer. Yeah. It's, it takes a while to look at it that way, I think, or it took a while for me to look at it that way. Because accepting one's own work is a little difficult when what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, I should say, is basically, to some extent, recapture this magic that I've seen other people do when they've released audio productions while putting my own spin on it. And so if I release work that isn't meeting up to the inspirations that I have for my work, then naturally my perspective on what I've released is going to be skewed in such a way that I'm not crazy about it. But over time, I- I've been gradually learning not to worry about that so much. And of course, I've been gradually working to make my work better so I can enjoy it more. Well, and that's that's a really good view to have. I mean, you know, it, my view is always what's the worst that can happen if you try and, and if you know, it fails if that's the worst that can happen. You know, it's not like 
my kind of view is I'm not a police officer in the line of duty. The, the ramifications of what I do are not going to put the world into a, a tailspin. And, um, and my view is, hey, J.D., at least you're trying. You know, a lot of people don't try. I wish I knew where to go from there. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to pick up from there. Uh, if I were to try and apply yes and, then, of course, I'm going to talk about people I know who don't try. I don't want to do that. I can't go <laughs> No, no, don't there. get into that. That, that can get into <laughs> libel and slander, and let's, let's not go down that road. Let's, let's avoid that entirely. <laughs> so you've said in other interviews that Weird Al, Weird Al Yankovic, was the first person who gave you permission to use his likeness for a puppet and was a big supporter of your company and your work very early on. How did that relationship come about? Well, yeah, I mean, he still is, and, and you know, the guys in the band are, are supportive as well. Um, it's kind of cool. They're on. They're doing their world tour right now, and so I shoot an email off to John Schwartz, the drummer, and I just say, hey, how's it going? And, you know, here's some fun backstage story and stories and that. And, um, but how that basically came about is in 1996, um, so that was two years after the company started, um, someone in the company had heard a, that Weird Al was performing in London, Ontario. And so it was like, well, why don't we try, you know, doing a puppet likeness of him, just getting permission. And so, you know, wrote to the company, wrote, wrote to his manager and said, this is, you know, this is what the, my company does and we want to, you know, make a puppet likeness of him, not to sell, but it's in the shows. And got a phone call from him, I believe it was the next day, saying, yeah, absolutely, go ahead. Um, and you have permission to use his music for free, as long as it's within these parameters. And he said, you know, Alan, the, the guys would like to meet you, so, you know, if you want, there are some backstage passes for the London show. And that's kind of how it happened. And it was, it was very quick, very sort of all of a sudden kind of thing. And uh, it's just, he's he and the gang have been such... Um, wonderful supporters you know that we we've done the 1980s weird owl so he has the mustache and the hawaiian shirt um we've done amish owl for amish paradise of course and uh dressed him as a yoda as well for the the force awakens not the force awakens um the first of the last trilogy when Anakin was a little boy, you can tell I know these movies very well. <laughs> yes, yes, um, that one, the the one with one. him is is yes, that one. You know, with with the people in it and the heads. It's, I believe the official title is Star Wars Episode Three. That one. <laughs> yes, that one. You know that one. Um, of course. Yeah. So it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was nice. It just allowed us to do great. You know, allowed us to open up the show in much more of a theatrical way. We even did uh, Jurassic Park at one point where we had a giant blow up um, Tyrannosaurus Rex run through. and But we did get flack from some people um, with the Amish oh. weirdo. Oh. <laughs> um, because, <laughs> because what's interesting is when we go through these, because during the touring years we, um, we toured in schools. So during that period we were always sort of cognizant of um, you know, how will this affect the kids, you know? And so we went through Amish Paradise and cut out any parts that even remotely anyone would get offended by. And it didn't kill the song at all. It just, we, you know, we, we did some mixing and made it good and, or, you know, made it sound great. And 
And, uh, yeah, after the show, one of the teachers in one of the schools came up to, came up to us very angry. And I think I was, like, 15 at the time. And they were like, that was highly offensive. <laughs> and we're like, oh, well, so when someone says that to me, I'm always interested in, well, what was offensive? Well, right. you're, you're making fun of Amish people, and they're not here to see it. Uh, and so, like, how do you react to that? Huh. It's like, well, first of all, Amish people wouldn't be here because they live a very different life. Yeah. And also, the song itself is not making fun of Amish people. It's pointing out the ignorance of non-Amish people sometimes when it comes to the Amish. Right. Um, but it was it was a very weird, bizarre situation because this person was very offended. They have no connection to Amish people. Like it's not like that. You know, their children are Amish or anything. It was just someone who's very upset. If and, you give uh, a, if you give someone any opportunity to be offended, a lot of times people really like to take it, even if they have no reason to take it. <laughs> Really? Is that something new? Because I haven't heard of people getting offended over nothing at all. Um, yeah, I know. It's, it's very, very odd. I mean, I don't mind hearing constructive criticism um, about my work because I'm like, hey, maybe people have better ideas than me. You know, I, I don't doubt that. Um, and it always has to be, for me at least, a reasonable constructive criticism. Hmm. But to me, that just sounded like someone who wanted to be offended over something. Yeah. Now, in one of your earliest interviews on the Muppet Cast, if I may continue with this brief history of Lemon Productions, um, actually, it's Nicholas Lemon Productions. We actually just had a name change. It was uh, Lemon Productions for many years, and due to some, you know, just some needing to uh, rejig the business a bit, it's been renamed. So that's fine. My apologies there. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Now, I know you and Steve mentioned, kind of, kind of as a joke, the possibility of making the Mythbusters as puppets. Were you ever able to do that? No, not mm. at all. I mean, for some reason, just it never happened. I'm not sure whether, you know, they just, like, we never heard from them. I, so I was, I ask because I'm curious about, surely there must have been some times when you've had ideas for celebrities that you've really wanted to make into puppets, but for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. I didn't know if you happened to have any stories about that. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't name these people because I don't want to. Right. Um, of course. I don't want. But yes, I would say we we had about a 50-50 hit list. Hit list. That's the wrong word. Ooh. Um, We're all <laughs> using the wrong words today. It's all right. <laughs> we 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 um, we had about a 50-50 hit and miss kind of ratio. That's the word. Hit and miss, not hit list. Uh, we had about a 50-50 uh, hit and miss kind of. Um, ratio. So uh, we we had permission from Weird Al, Elvis Presley, Elton John, Janet Jackson. Um, a lot of people said yes, but a lot of people um, who you would certainly know um, have outright said no. Um, and as I, I spoke with Steve recently, as I told him, is looking back on on time because that would have been in the '90s. Um, some of these artists, I think were having some business issues. Um, so giving permission for puppet likeness, I think, was the least of their concerns. So I, I don't, I personally don't um, take offense to that. I mean, uh, you know, I understand looking out for your brand and, you know, what works for you kind of thing. So, but right. I'm very happy with who we got. I mean, Elvis Presley, my gosh, that's, that's a hard yeah. artist to get permission from, <laughs> especially with him being dead. 
Um, yes, that's quite the accomplishment right there. Now, in what <laughs> ways have you made your puppet style, the puppetry style of your company, whether it's in the design of the puppets or the kind of comedy and performing that you do, how have you made that stand out from what other puppet companies have done in the past? Well, before I say this, anything I say, I'm not trying to slag off on anyone. I'm not trying to, you know, say anybody else does poor work. Um, basically, you know, that, that I have to give credit to Karen Tinline. She, she runs the, um, she runs the, uh, uh, create the workshop end of things. And she also helped, uh, if you watch the credit, she was also my assistant director and assistant editor. Um, she has always had this wonderful eye for quality and detail. And so it hasn't been hard from the standpoint is, you know, having her there and um, she's been sort of the the guardian of, of, you know, finding new ways of doing things. Uh, as far as my end of it goes, I'm, I'm always looking for what works. And for some reason, this style seems to work. I think some of it has to do with the character too. I think you can have a really great puppet, but if you don't give it life, you don't give it heart and humanity, um, it doesn't matter how nice the puppet looks. Right. It's going to be a bad, you know, it's going to be a bad puppet. Likewise, you can take any, you know, you can take a pen and give it life. You know, if you look at Charlie Chaplin, I'm um, not sure what movie he did with the. Uh, the bread rolls on the on the uh, the forks or the knives and he just you know gave those you know the the silverware and the piece of, of bread life you know so for me it's always been about the quality and quality as i as i said isn't always about the best kind of puppet there are two characters in some tv called kevin and herkimer they're um they're uh, two ghosts and uh, a bit of their backstory is they were actually the uh, lookouts on the Titanic. Um, and they were the, uh, Frederick Fleet and, and um, the other gentlemen were coming on shift. So Kevin and Herkimer were being relieved by Frederick Fleet and this other gentleman. And they forgot that, you know, Kevin and Herkimer forgot they had the, the binoculars. And so unfortunately without the binoculars, you know, the ship hit the iceberg and sank. And Kevin and Herkimer lived, but God was not happy with that. So they decided, you know, we can't get work, so let's try a vaudeville act. And so they were getting on stage, ready to do their first vaudeville act, when they both collapsed on stage and died. No one knows how what happened. They still can't figure out what happened. And so God was really hurt and offended that they took the binoculars. So Kevin and Herkimer have to spend the rest of eternity in purgatory entertaining God with a bad vaudeville routine. And so that is quite the intricate story and an interesting setup. So that's who they are, you know, and again, even me just telling you their backstory, their characters are already in in your mind. You kind of know what they are, but the puppets themselves are actually very very simple. They're two like bamboo three bamboo rods. Um, and uh, put some foam over the stick for the body and put a cloth over it and gave the cloth two eyes um, and a little bow tie. And those are the puppets, but people seem to really have taken a, a liking to those characters. Are you able to hear me all right? Because I think I may have missed perhaps just the last word. I can't hear you. 
Greetings from the management of MuppetHub.com. At this time, we are experiencing technical difficulties because the internet does not function in Canada. Consequently, the remainder of this interview will not sound the same, and the difference in quality can probably be blamed on Krista Newman. We'll get right back to the interview after this brief commercial break. Say, have you heard of MuppetHub.com? No, I have not. What is that? Muppet Hub is where the Muppetational comes together. It's your source for great videos, articles, quizzes, trivia, and clip art, all about Jim Henson and the Muppets. It's also the home of 11 Point Collar, a Muppet Fan podcast. This podcast. I have ha- to go to the bathroom now. What? In the middle of the promo? Fine, I'll finish the promo without you. This podcast has trivia, history, music, humor, and all of the things you love in a Muppet podcast. It's also had great guests, including Brian J. Jones, Frogfan76, Noel McNeil, Andrew James Spooner, the directors of I Am Big Bird, Peter Linz, and most of all, Ryan Dozier. Visit us at MuppetHub.com today. You'll be glad you did. In addition to Jim Henson and Monty Python, who have been some of the biggest influences on your work and your performing? Well, I, I think, for me, surprisingly, Bruce Lee, his philosophy of, you know, trying things and, you know, breaking the rules, you know, try something, and if it works, use it. If it doesn't work for you, discard it. You know, that certainly certainly had an influence. Um, I would also say Steven Spielberg, from a directing standpoint and storytelling standpoint, you know, so much of, of what I saw growing up, you know, whether it was from American Tale to, you know, Saving Private Ryan to anything like that was um, was very influential from a, a filmmaking standpoint, um, and then also I'd say movies like Biodome. You know, some movies can just be fluff and fun, and it's it's a great you know art doesn't always have to be dead serious. It can be silly and stupid and just a nice waste of two hours. You know. Um, so that, and I'm not trying to offend anybody involved with Biodome, but it's it's um, you know, it's always about trying new things. Um, personally, I, personally, I've always found rule breakers in general to be very very attractive to learn from because for me, I was always raised where you question everything. You know, don't automatically just because it's been done that way doesn't mean you have to. Um, it has. It doesn't mean it has to be done that way. So I, I would say those, I mean, I could give you a list of a hundred different people, but I'd say those would <laughs> be a nice cross-section. Yeah. When listening to some of your interviews with Steve on the MuppetCast from a few years ago, I was actually reminded of something Frank Oz said when he was talking about The Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the exact quote. I get annoyed these days. I'm not going to do it in my Frank Oz voice. Just, <laughs> it's tempting. It's very tempting. I'm not. Oh, come on. You should do it. Totally do it. Really? No, it's okay. If you don't want to, that's okay. But I it's do want to really hear it. It's really bad. Time. Okay, I will, I will do it for you later. Okay. Anyway, he said, I get annoyed these days talking about the cost of a film because that's not what you do a film for. If you want to make money, you don't do a film. It's always a gamble. <laughs> and so you're really doing a film because it excites you. Now, I think the reason why that came to mind is because you said something in one of the previous recordings that you've done, one of the recordings on the MuppetCast, I mean, um, about how sometimes people 
uh, might be talking to you just because they're interested in making money in the entertainment business, whereas your thesis seems to be, or seems to have been for a while, that you got to follow what you're really passionate about and make that the whole point of what you do. So with that in mind, uh, what's it been like having to manage the business side of things in order to do uh, some of the fun puppet projects that you're really passionate about? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and enormous. I'm sorry it was so big. <laughs> no, um, I guess it, it, it's difficult sometimes. I mean, anybody that tells you it's easy to balance the creative with the business, it's not easy. I mean, you know, you, you, if, you want, if you want an easy job, you know, you don't go into making movies or the entertainment industry. You know, it, it, that's not the way to do it. Um, there are, like, say for the editing of some TV, you know, there were many, many times where, you know, I had been editing and I had to take a, a phone call for sponsorship or, or anything like that. So immediately I had to switch from creative to business. And, you know, again, I think because I did did it so young, you know, starting off so young, it's not as hard, but it still is hard because my natural instinct is the creative, the artistic. And I've just had to develop that muscle of business, you know, and, and also listen to people that, you know, I know I can trust, you know. That's, that would be the big thing is if someone was looking for advice is don't just go with anyone who says they can help you. Um, you know, I made that mistake many times over my career, you know, um, throughout the touring years. Just don't just, just because someone says they can do it doesn't mean they can. And <laughs> if someone has an issue with you trying to do some due diligence on them, trying to ask them questions on what their background is, run. Because <laughs> a person, if a, if a person is truly open to helping, they should be willing to be able to stand there and have some at least basic question to ask. Um, also, too, what, if, if someone will only give you what their great things are and never what their faults are, that's also a red flag. Hmm, interesting. Because anyone can talk up a storm. Anyone can, can sit there and say how great they are. But it's, it's through the failures that we learn and, and adapt and grow. Yeah. Very, very fascinating. I think that this has been a great discussion. So where can listeners go to see your work, to see some TV or some of your other projects? Well, if you go to my website, nicholaslemonproductions.com, um, you'll be able to find out all kinds of information about me and some TV. There's uh, lots of behind-the-scenes photos there. Um, and we have clips every once in a while. We change them up of the special, so you'll be able to see some of the stuff that's there. Um, but if you if you want some to actually see some TV, um, you know, contact your local cable uh, public access station and let them know that it's something you'd like to see, you know. Um, if there's interest, you know, we can get it down to your... We can certainly work out a, a licensing deal for, for the network. That's awesome. That's really great. And just so they hear it one more time, I'm going to put it in the show notes as well. But your website is nicholaslemonproductions.com. Is that right? That is right. Awesome. I got it right. <laughs> well, it's, it's good to know that one thing has been successful in this interview. That, <laughs> that makes me feel happy. I'm looking forward to seeing the bloopers you have in the, show, in, in the interview. Oh, this will be interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. Oh, boy. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. Oh, no problem. And hopefully uh, 
hopefully in the future you'll have me back on. I hope I was as cool and interesting a guest as you had hoped. Oh, certainly. <laughs> Well, this show ended up being a little bit longer than I'd expected, but I think it was totally worth it because I really enjoyed the conversation that I had with Nicholas Lemon. He's a great guy, lots of fun to talk to. There's a lot that did get cut from this interview, unfortunately, so I have a lot of outtakes. Not all of them are really funny bloopers, so I don't have too much to play at the end of this episode, after the credits roll, so to speak, but just... Somebody remind me at some point that I do have some extra material to put somewhere. I just have to figure out where. Anyway, as you all know, you can reach me at me, M-E, at mobithub.com to tell me what you think of the show and what you're hoping to see me do with all the podcast productions that I have uh, throughout the fall and into the holiday season. Gosh, I can't believe we're already talking about the holiday season. I hate that. But anyway, since it is autumn, I'm going to do my random closing song of the week, as I usually do now. I still haven't gotten any feedback from you guys to hear whether or not you really like this way of ending the show, but I like it, so I'm doing it, and I'm going to make it about what else autumn. So here is a bit of Beverly Kenny's sensational recording of Tis Autumn. I hope you like it, and until next time, waka waka, wubba wubba, and weeba weeba. really is no crime ask the birds ask the trees and ask old father time it's just to make the mercury climb la di da di da di dum tis From a psychological standpoint, without getting too Freudian. <clears throat> um, On my shows, you are always allowed to get as Freudian as you want. Okay. Well, when I was five, this dog came into my bed and never... Oh, not like that. Sorry. Sorry.